Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna on News Talk. You can email the show aliveandkicking at newstalk.com or you'll find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Claire's Lair. Coming up this morning, Fighting Blindness is an organisation which helps those with sight loss and their families. Today, I'll be meeting one of its members and their former senior counselling manager, John Delaney, who lost his sight from his early teens and into his 20s. He's going to be telling me about Charles Bonnet syndrome, the phenomenon of hallucinating when blind and the images he himself sees. I'll also be joined by Andy Cope, an academic and author with a PhD in happiness. He'll be discussing what happiness is, how to get it and flourish in life and to talk about his latest book for children, Brill Kid, The Big Number Two. So what kind of a health and wellness week did I have? Well, I had a great week, I'd have to say. I'm feeling the effects of being in and settled after the move. I have no boxes to pack or unpack. The house sale is done and dusted. So there are no more certificates to find or emails to reply to. So I've mainly been working on my own work and pottering and living normal life and appreciating it so much. We are staying with my mum for the moment and it's the house I grew up in and it is in such a beautiful place. So it's felt really good. It's amazing what the feeling of home and a sea view will do for your soul. And my mum has been away, so I haven't been leaning on her for cooking and cleaning. So it's not that. It's the soul stirring stuff. And speaking of soul stirring, I was at my friend Georgie Crawford's Good Glow event at the National Concert Hall on Tuesday night. Georgie has been a guest on the show a couple of times and you can listen back in the Alive and Kicking podcast section of Newstalk.com to hear her story. But basically, she was diagnosed with breast cancer in her 30s and changed her life around to have self-care at the centre and launched a podcast called The Good Glow to tell stories of people overcoming adversity, which was a podcast she herself would have loved to have heard when she was in her darkest hour. So that was her initial intention. It has since exploded in popularity with 10 seasons, over 5 million listens. And on Tuesday, she had a live event at a packed National Concert Hall. So it was amazing to see my friend, to see how far she'd come. I mean, I always knew she was destined to shine bright, but it was also great to see so many people flock to a wellness event as a night out. It was really heartening to see and a really special night. And you know what? I think it serves as an example that you can come through really tough times. Uh, So I think that was the intention of Georgie's podcast and she's actually lived that herself. And that's not to say it was easy and that's not to say that the dark time wasn't long. And of course, that's not to say there's not still stresses in life, but with work and effort and taking time and having great family support and friend support, you can put yourself back together. There might be people listening that don't have some of those elements, and I I totally get that. But I think when you're in your darkest hour to see somebody who has been through it, who has dug deep and is now flourishing, should serve as some kind of inspiration. It's certainly been inspiring to me and not everybody, of course, has to end up on a stage with an audience because that might not be your dream. That might not be your thing. Myself and Georgie work together 
in radio and she'd done TV work. So, you know, this was kind of her, her arena and it was only her subject matter really changed. Like I said, I always knew she was destined to shine bright, but I don't think any of us could have predicted the actual journey she went on or, or the route that she took. But that's what life does. It throws some massive curveballs at us. So I think the main aim really is to feel well in yourself again, to feel strong that you have the strength to face the next wave that comes. You'll stand a little stronger and that through going through the tough stuff, you've learned a lot more about yourself um, and reframed the experience in some way. Again, absolutely easier said than done, but done. You can email the show alive and kicking at newstalk.com. Now, my next guest, John Delaney, is a psychotherapist and clinical supervisor and former senior counselling manager with Fighting Blindness. He joins me in studio today to talk about a condition he has experienced called Charles Bonnet Syndrome. Well, you're very welcome, John. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Were you joking a moment ago when you said Charles Bonnet or am I getting it wrong? Uh, I think he might have been a gentleman from Austria. So uh, Charles Bonnet Syndrome is what I think it's formally known. Makes it a little bit fancier and we will get into that. (laughs) It does actually. We'll get into that in a moment. But I've never spoken to somebody about sight loss or blindness Mm. before. And Mm. it's not something I think we talk about very openly and I'm I'm not really sure why. So I'm hoping you won't mind if we talk a little bit about that to begin with. Not at all. So tell me a bit about you. Were you born with full sight? No, uh, I was born with a condition called retinitis pigmentosa, or RP for short. And um, it affects the retina in the eye, which slowly degenerates. And that's the bit that transmits pictures to your brain. So as the retina degenerates, you lose your ability to see. That's a very simple um, explanation. So when I was born, I probably had reasonable sight. Um, I could get around five or six, but my parents noticed I was struggling at school or maybe out playing ball. Or if I dropped something on the floor, I would find it difficult to see. And they twigged there was something wrong. So they brought me to an ophthalmologist. And I guess there was an adult conversation that I wasn't a part of. And they were told I had this condition called RP, which is progressive. And I suppose you could say aggressive. And at the time, there were no treatments or cures for it. So they were probably told I would lose my sight, most of my working sight, by the time I was in my early 20s, which indeed transpired to be the case. So... From the age of five or six, right through schooling, adolescence, into my early uh, adult years, I was losing my sight slowly. And what I could do when I was 10, like say ride a bicycle, I certainly couldn't do when I was 20. It would have been far too dangerous. So it was that kind of arc of change in my life. Slow, incremental. And what was your sight like? Could you see things that were close to you so you might be able to read, but yes. you couldn't see something further down the road? It was a, a mix, a spectrum of things. Yes, it is. A good word is, is a spectrum. And I suppose when I was young, I could see, um, I could see colours, I could see faces, I could read. I could, in most cases, if I was sitting at the top of the class, I could see the blackboard. But it's like that all began to fade slowly, slowly, slowly. And so by the time I was in my early 20s I was using magnifying glasses to read and eventually assistive technology as it became more sophisticated to help me work and read um, read letters and things like that so um, it was a, a very slow changing process but it's cumulative and over time as you look back over your shoulder you realise 
gosh, I've, I have lost a lot of vision. And what I could see at 25 was much less than what I could see when I was 10. And what about the psychological impact of that? Were you just going through life as normal or are you conscious that this is quite traumatic and things are slipping away? Yes, I, I was pretending to be normal <laughs> because it's a difficult conversation. I, I feel for my parents who are both passed away now. Um, they didn't have the language, didn't have the concepts, didn't have the insights as to how to broach with your child that he's losing his sight. How do you start that conversation? What do you say? That's incredibly difficult. And I think they stood off the subject on the basis that I seemed to be coping. But unbeknownst to them, and I suppose to some extent unbeknownst to myself, um, because they didn't talk about it, I didn't know how to talk about it. So we kind of collaborated. They said nothing, I said nothing, and we got on with life. And that became normal. Um, so I often say I went blind on my own and I learned how to do that um, because as human beings, you put us in any adverse situation. It's amazing the things we can learn to do on our own. How we can use great uh, ingenuity and guile to, to get by, to, to function in class, to make sure that you sit closer to the blackboard than the, at the top of the class or ask one of your pals afterwards exactly what notes he took down. So um, I, be, I learned how to cope with sight loss without having any real help uh, until... In the very early 1980s, the organisation Fighting Blindness was, uh, was, was launched and that really changed my life and in many ways it very much liberated me in terms of now having the language and the concepts to talk about sight loss to others, to myself and to actually begin to take a constructive approach to how I would now live my life. And you're a highly qualified individual. You have a fantastic public facing job. As I said, you're a psychotherapist and a clinical supervisor. Yes. How did you navigate all of that? Because I suppose people <laughs> will assume you're losing your sight. You're just going mm. to sit in a room and, and, and wait for it to happen and you're not going to engage in normal life. Whereas, of course, that's not true. That's not true. I suppose with, so, with great difficulty and, and uh, I, I'm very fortunate. I, um, I tend to be quite optimistic by nature and I tend to be quite spirited I suppose and um, the idea that I would lose my sight and that would be the end of life it just didn't appeal to me and I thought really there has to be a better way of living life there has to be a bigger life and again I would credit fighting blindness with sort of helping me in that regard because I met other people in that organisation who were doing just that who had less sight than I had, but had gone out into the world, got an education, found employment, had relationships, had families, had mortgages like everybody else. And that inspired me. And I thought, well, if they can do it, why can't I do it? And so, if you like, I studied them. I became great friends with many of them. Uh, I joined committees in fighting blindness and I kind of learned how to do sight loss. And there are certain skills and attitudes that you have to develop, but it is possible to do that. But above all, I met great people. And for me, relationships are the most important thing in life. If you have good relationships, then you have a really healthy life. And if you have people who are there for you and who encourage you and who inspire you and who occasionally kick you up the backside because you need it, that's wonderful. And I've met plenty of those people along the way. So I've been very blessed. Is there anything you can't do? <laughs> 
Um, well, I can't drive a car and I can't fly an airplane, but um, um, I try to do most other things. Um, I would Assistive technology has just become uh, incredible over the last 10, 15 years. And I have a smartphone and it talks to me and I talk to it. So if I want to send you a text, Claire, I dictate it. And before I send it, I check it. It'll read it back to me. And if you respond, it'll read yours out to me. And um, and that's just one of the simple things that technology can do. So with assistive technology, I can book flights, Ryanair, I can uh, go to college, I can do my assignments, I can read the course material or rather listen to the course material. If you lose your sight, things do take longer. A colleague, a colleague once said that, you know, with any form of disability, there are three words that you have to learn and that you have to accept. And those three words are everything takes longer. So if you can accept that and realise that it may take longer, the journey may be different than it would be for a sighted person. But there is still a journey to be had and it can be a very rich one. So tenacity, effort, good uh, relationships, uh, some good fortune along the way are all very important. And a lot of fantastic organisations like, say, Fighting Blindness who really provide a great service for people who are dealing with sight loss and not just the person, him or herself, who has the condition, but also for the family around them. Because if you have any serious condition, and it's fair to say that sight loss is a serious condition, it's going to affect the people you live with. It's going to affect your your, your, your siblings, your parents, your partner, your children. And so it's important to recognise that you ha- you're all in it together and everybody at some time will need some support. Not all the time, but some of the time. Uh, well, I have full sight, John, and I can't fly a plane. And <laughs> based on some of the bumps and lumps out of my car, I struggle to drive that too at times. But can every experience be as rich travelling to another country, going to a sporting event, mm. seeing a movie mm. without sight? Um, I believe it can be. Um, I speak from personal experience. Uh, I like to travel, uh, as does my wife, who is sighted. And she's a wonderful guide. Uh, she knows exactly what I... If I, I love, we love to go to Paris. It's one of our favourite cities where we went on our honeymoon. And she knows just how much to tell me about where we're at and the kind of things that I'm interested in. But then we've developed that relationship over 35 years, so we know each other well. But it is possible to go to a movie, or in my case, I love to go to the theatre. Um, and it is possible to follow through the narrative, to what the actors are saying, what's happening. And there are some occasions, I'm not an expert on this, there are other people who know much more about this than I, where you can actually get a headset which will help you if you're sitting in a film and there's some there's some good piece of action taking place involving lots of cars going fast and gunfire, but there's no dialogue. And the narrator in the headset will tell you this is what's happening. James Bond is being chased by the baddie. He's shooting back. So it is possible to actually have a very rich experience in all those circumstances. And uh, sight is wonderful. Uh, It's important. I once had it, but I have other senses which I engage and which are equally as rich. Yeah, it's incredible how much the body can adapt and the human Mm. spirit can adapt. Yes, we surprise ourselves constantly if we allow ourselves to be surprised. Well, that story has taken the romance of Paris to a whole new level. That is absolutely (laughs) gorgeous. Tell us about Charles Bonnet syndrome, because that is fascinating. Yes, it is a fascinating uh, syndrome. Charles Bonnet syndrome. um, Effectively, in my case, I see things that aren't there. Um, And 
Um, it would the simple explanation is that because I could once see, um, my brain got used to receiving visual images, and as I began to lose that ability, my brain kind of got a little bit cheesed off by that, and and you know, began to fill in the gaps, so to speak, um, and began to try and um, create pictures, if you like, in in context for itself, um, and. It is, it's a condition that's not particularly well known, um, but I think through the work of fighting blindness and their advocacy work, we are getting to know a little bit more about it. In my case, what I see, very unusually, I think, um, are, it, it's like uh, pencil drawings of, of a contemplative man. Uh, I remember as a younger man, you, I might have seen a picture of, say, Plato, looking into the middle distance, contemplating some great question of existence. And I see faces like that all the time. They're always there, day, night, whether it's bright, whether it's dark. I know they're not there, but I know why they're there. And that is really very helpful. Um, some people see other things, faces and characters, um, uh, cartoon characters, I believe, are the most popular things that people see. But Whether really, they had sight originally or not. Uh, Charles Bonnet syndrome, as I understand it, I'm a psychotherapist as opposed to an ophthalmologist, but my understanding is that Charles Bonnet syndrome is a syndrome that will develop in some people. Depends. Some people say 10%, some people say up to 25% of people who had vision and develop a significant sight loss, but who haven't been blind from birth. That's my understanding of it. And you were at a fighting blindness event and, and watched somebody put their hand up and say, I often see somebody down the back of the garden yeah, and I can't exactly. see. So yes. I know I can't see them. And you were like, wow, that's me too. And that's how you found out about well, all this. It was slightly, yes. Um, it, about 20 years ago, I was at a fighting blindness AGM. I think it was in the Gresham Hotel. And there was a question and answer session afterwards. And Dr. Paul Keller, who's uh, an ophthalmologist and uh, lectures in genetics in Trinity, um, was on the panel. And somebody stood up and said, I often look out, a lady who was losing her sight, I think she had a retinitis pigmentosa. And she said, I often stand in my kitchen and look down out into my garden and I, I see people down there and I know they're not there. Why is that? And Paul explained it was Charles Bonnet syndrome, which greatly reassured this lady that she's not going mad. And Charles Bonnet syndrome is the sign of a healthy brain rather than an unhealthy brain. And I thought that was a fascinating story. And at that stage, I hadn't developed Charles Bonnet syndrome. So when it happened to me some years later, that piece of information just clicked in. And as a result, I, I wasn't frightened by it. I knew exactly what was happening. And knowing that it was a sign that my brain was healthy as opposed to not functioning well was a great relief. Um, and, and again, um, compliments to fighting blindness they tend to be, no pun intended, quite far-sighted in terms of how they address the issues of the visually impaired community. Well, I think it just shows the power of shared experience and yes. how important being able to access that is. And thank you, John, because you've allowed me to ask some questions that might be considered insensitive for me to say, you know, do you miss being able to see Daniel Craig's face when you're watching a John James Bond movie? Yes. But I think it's important for us to hear that yes, you live a full life, that yes, you are highly qualified, that yes, you have relationships and weekends away and all that sort of stuff. Because maybe if somebody comes in contact with somebody who's blind, they won't underestimate them the way they might have before. I think we tend to <clears throat> stereotype people. Uh, we all do that. Um, so if I can help people to see uh, somebody as a person with visual impairment, but not 
defined by their visual impairment and not confined by their visual impairment. It's a significant issue, but it doesn't have to, det- it has to inform your life for sure, but it doesn't have to define your life. And if I could get that message out, I'd be very happy. Can I ask you one last quick question about your work as a psychotherapist? Yes. Do you think it's a bit of a, a superpower in your job? Do people feel more comfortable opening up to you because they don't have that eye to eye contact? Well, um, I, I remember one lady said to me that she liked coming to talk to me because I couldn't see her and I couldn't judge her for how she looked. And she had an experience of life in life of being judged by other people by how she looked. Um, and so perhaps for some, to some extent, people feel comfortable. But I think from my point of view as a psychotherapist, um, uh, it's, a, it's a safe space in which to come and talk about things that are on the inside of your head that you're, you find very difficult to articulate to yourself, let alone to anyone else. And often in life as individuals, we have relationships with partners and spouses and children and parents and work colleagues. And they have certain expectations of us, which to one extent we want responsibility, but to another extent they can sometimes be very, very restrictive of what we feel we can say or share in case we worry the people we love. So it's nice to have a safe space where you can go and talk to somebody like me, a therapist, and have the conversations that you need to have, but feel that you can't have with other people because you feel that you might let them down or you might be shamed or they might judge you in some way. They might think less of you. So it's very much about that safe space of having, speaking the things that that you have maybe never spoken outside of your head before or even admitted to yourself. And I have to say in my life as a therapist, people find that very liberating. It's like putting a burden down. It's like saying something for the first time in maybe 30 or 40 years that they've always needed to say but haven't been able to say, and they've carried that. Well, the problem with burdens is that they tend to get heavier and heavier and heavier. So for me, psychotherapy is a, is a, is a process of uh, um, self-liberation, really. Um, I, I hope that goes some way to answering your question. It does, because it's just showing that judgment is not a part of it at all. That's, no. that, that's not going to be there. But I suppose it's about how people would feel. But you have a lovely way about you, John, you're very easy to be in company with and you've been very generous with your personal experience and thank you very much. For more information on Charles Bonnet syndrome or to make a donation towards innovative research, I think John's shown just how needed an organisation like Fighting Blindness is. You can go to fightingblindness.ie. Again, John Delaney, thank you so much Many for coming thanks, on. Claire. You can email the show aliveandkicking at newstalk.com. Coming up after the break, Dr. Andy Cope on how to get happy. Alive and kicking with Claire McKenna on News Talk. Dr. Andy Cope is a qualified teacher, a best selling author, a happiness expert, and academic. He's a much sought after keynote speaker and authority on employee engagement, well being, and human flourishing. He's a hugely successful author of titles such as How to Be a Well-Being, Unofficial Rules to Live Every Day, and he's also a best-selling children's author. His Spy Dog series has sold in excess of a million copies worldwide. His other topics and titles include The Art of Being Brilliant, Diary of a Brilliant Kid, and a second book in that series has just been released, Brill Kid, The Big Number Two. And the new book looks to help seven to 11-year-olds to flourish when the world is doing its worst. He is on the line now. Hello, Andy. How are you? 
Hi, Claire. I'm very good. Very good. Thanks for having me on. It's a very impressive CV, full of success, and you're out there making a difference in the world. How did your studies lead you to focusing on happiness and human flourishing? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I'm actually uh, over this side of the water. I'm actually a doctor of happiness, which I I know sounds a bit cheesy. Um, But I spent 15 years at Loughborough University in England researching a subject called positive psychology, which is basically the science of happiness and the science of well-being. So my job as an academic was basically to seek out happy people and work work out why they're so happy and um, that's where the books and the the talks come from now is actually there's a there's some science behind how to feel good and i think it's actually needed in the modern world when the world's been very brutal for the last 18 months so we all need a bit more happiness in our lives and i think it's really interesting to have you on and talk about the science behind it because I think the wellness space has gotten crowded and I do think there are issues with that and it's become a profit margin for lots of people but sometimes I think there are things that we write off like gratitude diaries or guidance cards but I think to underestimate the power of programming positive self-worth thought is to underestimate at your peril, the detriment to your health caused by negative self-talk and the stress that it builds up. Oh, gosh. I mean, yes. I mean, we're quite deeply into it there straight away. I think you're absolutely right. Is If left to our own devices, human beings, we're quite negative creatures. We're quite pessimistic. We've got something called negativity bias, which means your brain is super good at looking at the problems in the world and spotting danger. So what you, if, you, if you don't do anything about that, then you can become stuck in a rut of just looking at the negatives. And think, as you said, things like a gratitude, keeping it. If everybody listening to this just got a pen and paper and wrote down a list of 10 things you really appreciate but take for granted, then what you'll find on there is there's relationships and there's people and there's having a roof over your head and there's uh, living in a wonderful country and there's having a health service and have food on your plate. What if true happiness isn't about chasing more? But as you said, it's about focusing on what you've already got. So that's a great starting point. And a lot of the things that I learned... Uh, on my 15-year PhD route is things I already knew 15 years previously, but I I wasn't doing them. I needed reminding of some very simple principles. And is that why you went down the route of being a children's author? Do you hope to get into young people's heads early and, and set up those positive habits and those neural pathways? Uh, pretty much exactly. I mean, to be fair, growing up, I mean, I'm I'm 54. Growing up has always been a contact sport. So growing up, particularly teenage years, is fitting in and exam pressures and relationship pressures and being picked last at netball pressures and all that. They've always existed. But if you then layer on what modern children are contending with, if we add on to all that, a pandemic and climate anxiety and social media, all the things that I didn't have to deal with when I was growing up, then then growing up's gone from being a contact sport to downright dangerous and hazardous. And I I describe it like the age of anxiety. What you look at now, if you look at the statistics, is anxiety and panic attacks are now very commonplace, even in primary schools. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because you think, oh, my kids don't really know about any of that stuff. But they do because they are being not only taught about it in child-specific language, of course, but they're learning about it in school. They have me, for example, as a, as a parent, banging on about the amount of plastic and putting things in the recycle bin and the importance of it to the environment to washing their hands every two seconds in case they bring COVID into the house. So while you're not sitting them down and giving them the actual COVID figures of the day or, you know, the actual statistics coming from COP26, it's still feeding into them that there's danger out there. 
the little sponges are soaking it all up and they are there are a lot of worried children out there and a lot of worried teenagers out there but what happens of course what happens um again over this side is we we wait for people to break or to suffer and then we try and fix them and what positive psychology comes out is about well surely we should be preventing them getting anxious in the first place if we could learn some strategies that would allow us to take care of our own well-being then we, we would be able to deal with the world as it is so uh, not the world as you want it to be because if we're all waiting for the perfect world we'll probably die waiting the world is imperfect it will always be imperfect but so what we've got to do is find a way of shining in an imperfect world and that you're absolutely right is it, the earlier you can learn these lessons then the more resilient you will be growing up. So what is happiness as you understand it through your studies? Do you believe it's a, it's a decision people can make? Um, again, it's quite a nuanced academic point. I don't think happiness is a choice. Okay, so happiness is an emotion. And what you can do with happiness is you can open up to it and you can allow more happiness into your life. But you can't actually choose happiness. But positivity is not an emotion. Positivity is an attitude. And therefore, if you can learn to be more positive, then that's a, that will inoculate yourself against the worst of the world. But the question, of course, is how? It's all around, so, you know, we go on social media, we read all these wonderful quotes, uplifting quotes. But when the world is knocking the happiness out of us, what we've got to do is, is learn, like I say, to take control of our own well-being and mental health um so rather than waiting for people to break and fixing them is inoculating them giving them strategies that they can use so they don't break in the first place what blocks happiness um i think the modern world is very good at blocking happiness and i think um i think it's for adults because i know this will be going out mostly to adults i think the relentless nature of the world i think the full-onness of it if you like and the the news and the social media pressures and the it's all against us, really. So what we've got to do is, is um, I think we're really busy, quite often doing the wrong things. We're busy doing the wrong things. Here's another list for your listeners, right? If everybody got a pen and paper and wrote down the 10 happiest moments of their life, right, which is quite a, a difficult thing because you'll have lots. But if you narrowed it down to the 10 happiest moments of your life, I would hazard a guess that there won't be any products on that list. It will be moments. It will be special times that you spent with close family, probably with no Wi-Fi, doing very simple things. And therefore, experiences with people, that's really where your happiness will lie. So I would say to, to kids is to set out to have more experiences, um, not online experiences, but experiences with real people, very simple pleasures. Um, and, and I think that's where the key to happiness is much more correlated with relationships and people than it is with um, products. And I think that's interesting that you say moments, because I think we have this idea that happiness is something you're supposed to feel every single second of every single day. And we're supposed to have a whole spectrum of emotions through any given day. And I think there's become this rhetoric that we avoid all the negative feelings, whereas anger, rage, upset, sadness, they're all very much a, a, a part of it as well. And, and happiness is there among it. You're not necessarily supposed to be skipping along like a Disney character 24-7. <laughs> 
Oh, Claire, I love you. I love you. I think you really get this, right? There's an old English word, grinagog, right? We, it's a 17th century word. We don't use it anymore. But a grinagog is somebody who's so happy you want to punch them on the nose, right? And I'm, so you can be too happy. And I, of course, nobody's, I'm a doctor of happiness, but I'm not happy all the time. And I think all the emotions you alluded to that anger and fear and frustration and anxiety, they're all perfectly valid emotions. Um, and, and, we, and, and being alive, being a human means you have to experience all of those emotions. But what you want to try and do is experience more of the positive ones and a little bit less of the negative ones in order to sort of really, truly flourish. And that's, and that's it. But they're all OK. I, when children tell me I've got anxiety, I, I question that. I, I think I, I have I've got anxiety, too, sometimes. But I've also got joy and happiness and I know how to bring those to the fore. And I think that's where we're going wrong. We're bringing the wrong emotions into our consciousness. So what are those strategies for happiness? What do most happy people, in inverted commas, have in common? Uh, well, they have the, the, you've already alluded to gratitude. They tend to come at life from the bedrock of looking at what they have got rather than grumbling about what they haven't got. So, this, so the gratitude list actually is a true, true and proven uh, therapeutic thing. Um, choice for me, what, com- what came out of my research was attitudinal choice. So consciously and deliberately choosing a positive attitude, which kind of goes around with you everywhere. Um, then there's all sorts of things. Around. I mean, here's a lovely one. It's, it's the science of hugging. I don't know if you're a huggy person, but uh, the, the average hug lasts 2.1 seconds. But for the love to transfer between two people, a hug needs to last seven seconds or longer. And that's a beautiful piece of homework for the people over in Ireland is is to become a seven second hugger with the people you love. Um, so it's not for strangers in the park, you know, because that's weird. But actually, even if you're a non-hugger, is actually treat the 12 people in your life who are closest emotionally to you. So close family, close friends. After after you've listened to this um, recording is, is actually go and hug somebody and hang on to them for seven seconds and see what happens and what it should do don't count out loud because that'll spoil it but what will happen is the love will naturally transfer it's a beautiful thing to do and um it's an i love you hug a seven second hug there's your homework oh i love that and you know myself i am a hugger and myself and my sister actually (laughs) rate people by virtue of their hugs and the ones we like the best are like the ones with the squeeze at the end and I think I'm going to tell her it's got to be something to do with the seven seconds we must be feeling the love as they last that little bit longer will you stay on the line Andy I'm going to have to take a quick break Um, I'm talking to Dr Andy Hope a doctor of happiness and also a best-selling author and children's author and we'll get on to his new book Brill Kid the big number two after this short break and you're welcome back to Alive and Kicking, where I'm joined by Dr. Andy Cope, who is a best-selling children's author and a doctor of happiness. We will get to your new book in a moment, Andy, but can we talk a little bit about you asking yourself that question, could I be happier even if nothing around you in the world changed? Because I think that some of the things we touched on in the first half of the interview before the break, people would be like, well, that's great, but I have like you know, I've just lost my job. I'm suffering from illness. Somebody just died in my life. I've got some really tough stuff going on right now. For you to say, go around hugging people and just start writing down <laughs> what you have in your life. Some people find it kind of patronising and and annoying. Um, well, we, I try and ever so hard not to be patronising and annoying. And I know that everybody has terrible things happening in their life. Absolutely, everybody will have things that go terribly wrong. And that, that is perfectly okay 
to feel down and unhappy when bad things genuinely do happen. But I think, aren't we just getting upset about the wrong things? All right, we're getting anxious about our bus being five minutes late, or we're getting upset about having too many emails. And these aren't things that are worth panicking about, I promise you. So I think um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a difference between your to-do list and your to-be list. That's something that comes out in the book. And everybody listening to this will have lots of things to do today. We're super busy and we're rushing around trying to tick everything off our to-do list. And I understand that and I get that. But I think that actually positive psychology comes out from your what I call your to-be list, which is a really big question to ask yourself, who am I being while I'm doing the things on my to-do list? So, for example, am I being world-class? Am I being positive about myself? Am I being confident? Am I being upbeat and optimistic and passionate? Or am I accidentally being ground down by a late bus and a rainy day? Because I promise you, if you can learn to be your best self on a more consistent basis, then a lot of the to-dos will get ticked much quicker because you're super productive. But of course, bad, bad things do happen to good people. Life is not fair. Um, and But I think positive psychology helps you, even if you're ill and even if you have a bereavement, the list of gratitude still works. It's still looking at um, uh, um, trying to give yourself a positive spin um, on what can be a bad situation. And I think it feels like a lot of effort to, to start this sort of positive thinking and, and reinforcement and, and affirmation but like I said earlier you don't realise what negative habits you have and the amount of negative self-talk you have so I mean if you're going to start your day hitting snooze a million times and getting out of the bed thinking how tired you are and how you don't want to do this and that spirals on through the day where you start picking holes in things that haven't been done around the house or the way the kids are behaving or how you hate the people in work it just spirals where if you try and start from somewhere more positive, it then spirals the positivity. Oh, absolutely. Well, the thing is, um, in terms of children, actually, and I'll give you a top tip to get out of bed with a smile on your face in a second. But the really important point about children here is, is essentially for all the parents and grandparents out there, your children won't do what you say. All right. So if you were a parent, you've already worked that out, but they will do what you do. Okay, now this is crucial. It's called social learning. So what basically your kids will role model your behaviors. So if you want your children to be positive and upbeat and confident environment and alive and passionate about life, you have to actually do that. You have to lead by example. Um, So in terms of getting out of bed with a positive attitude, my life changed about it was in 2008. I was reading a book on mindfulness. And one of the sentences said, what you need to do is wake up in the morning being really grateful that you've not got toothache. And I can remember thinking that was a bit weird, but I started to do it. And I did that every single day for 365 days, getting out of bed. My very first thought of the day was, oh, OK, here we go again, another day. But oh, hang on, hang on a second. No toothache again. What a great start to the day, which immediately, just bear with me, right, immediately gave me energy and a smile on my face. So when my kids came down for breakfast, I'm serving the Cheerios with a smile and, and some energy. I've got some music on. My children went off to school much happier because, and they overperformed at school. They were happy because I was happy. I was happy because I didn't have toothache and nobody knew because it was a game in my head. And that was a real big breakthrough for me because essentially it was a a bit of a life hack at 6am in the morning that would just put me in a better mood that would last me, as you alluded to, that would then kickstart my day in the right way instead of the wrong way. What is the left brain, right brain exercise and how does that impact on how we go about our life? 
Oh, well, it's whole brain thinking really is what we're trying to do is there's all sorts of activities and things that you can do. This is why physical fitness is really important, actually. And, and going out on a mountain bike or going out for a walk, because what that will do is switch both halves of your brain on. Um, instead, I, I don't know if you've seen the movie Sixth Sense. It's a sort of uh, it's a quite a scary thing, actually, with a little boy who's got Bruce Willis in it. Yep. And there's a classic line in that movie where this boy's very troubled and very teary. And he looks at Bruce Willis and he says, I see dead people. And I think, you know, I'm kind of seeing them as well. Not not technically they're alive. They've got a pulse, but they're not fully embraced the wonderfulness of life. And I think that there's far too many people there. They're not clinically depressed or sad, but we're languishing. We're just a little bit stuck in being mediocre. And I think switching yourself on to to being your own best friend is a starting point being nice to yourself and compassionate in your own head is a great starting point but then get yourself sorted and then that will leak out of you i call it flourishing flourishing is when your happiness is bigger than you so we can all think of a handful of people in our lives who've got something extra an extra smile an extra positivity an extra spring in their step and my research is about those people who are they what can we learn from them that we can apply to our our own lives and that's what the books are about has your message evolved over time with either new research or experience? Yes, it continues to do. And I think that, I mean, I wrote a book uh, called the, um, the Art of Being a Brilliant Teenager. I wrote that book eight years ago and I'm having to currently rewrite that book because it is now out of date <laughs> because the world has advanced massively in the last eight years. So I'm having to update it. So, yeah, I continually learning new things. But the beauty of positive psychology is its simplicity. Okay, there's nothing difficult. I don't describe it as personal development. I describe it as personal remembering, remembering how to be our best self on a more consistent basis. So your latest book, Brill Kid, The Big Number Two, this is helping seven to 11 year olds. Why that age bracket? Um, well, because again, I'm not sure what it's like over your way, but in our neck of the woods here, that the age of anxiety is coming down and down into primary schools. So I do primary school visits and I see kids who are already medicated or are, are having panic attacks at age eight and my heart is breaking my heart. So what we've got to do is find a way of helping them to, 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 to be more resilient. And obviously what we wanted to do was was write a book that first and foremost that is great fun. It's got to be fun. But if there's some learning surreptitiously hidden in the pages, learning about, I, I describe it as carefully crafted silliness. There's stories, there's jokes, there's activities, there's quotes, there's a science of happiness. But it's all disguising a really quite hard-hitting thing around resilience and positive psychology. Well, I absolutely love your work. Keep doing what you're doing. The book is called Brill Kid, The Big Number Two. Dr. Andy Cope, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. So that's it for Live and Kicking for this week. My thanks to my producer, John Fardy, and Jojo Cordoza, who was on sound. And thanks to you for listening. I'll see you next week.